Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 17. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt, the, and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that, um, that, I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before the, um, before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food from your, for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father uh, to eat so that he may bless you before, before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So we're in this series of the fathers of the Jewish people known as the patriarchs. We're in the life of Jacob. Last week, we got an idea of who Jacob was. Jacob's name means heel grabber. It was a euphemism back in his time, which meant a deceiver, a con man, a rascal. I like that particular interpretation, rascal. So I'm like, is he spanky or alfalfa? We see he's a rascal, and it's about to go from kind of like somewhat funny to something very deadly serious in which he'll have to, at the end of this chapter, which we will not be getting to today, um, he'll have to flee for his very life because he's being such a rascal. His story, like every story, isn't mainly about him. In time, Jacob will be known as Israel, and to this day, we call the nation, the Jewish people are in, the nation of Israel. We say they're the people of Israel. They're Israelites. That comes from Jacob. Jacob Jacob wrestled with his brother in the womb. And one day he would wrestle with God and God would give him the name Israel. But where we're at in chapter 27, not yet. In fact, as we go into chapter 27, I want to remind you something with Isaac. When we left off with Isaac, things were blessed. He had messed up, sure. He had said that his wife was his sister like his father before him, but things were going very well. In fact, when him and his wife couldn't conceive, he prayed for her and she conceived. I want to remind you of the relationship Isaac had with Rebecca. It wasn't a business relationship. 
It says in chapter 24 that after his mother Sarah had died, God used her to comfort him. When, when he was playing that little game where he was saying, she's not my wife, she's my sister. You know how he was found out? They were giggling together. We get into this chapter and you've already heard, right? She's not even speaking with Isaac anymore. She's listening in. She's subverting what he wants to do. But this, this dysfunction happened even a little bit before this, but we see this family, everything was good. And now things are falling apart. Things are being destroyed. I mentioned this at the very beginning of this series. That's Genesis. Things start off good. God makes the world in six days. On the seventh, he rests and he says, it's very good. He makes man. Man is very good. He makes woman because it's not good for man to be alone. So now it's good. And then they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin enters paradise and they are removed from paradise. And every story is another story of things starting off good, of the blessing. And then because because the people in the story rebel against God, they lose that blessing. The blessings become a curse and families and nations and a people and individuals are destroyed. But God sends a deliverer. But God mends what is broken. God does what others can't do. And then we get to the next story. The same thing happens until we get to Jesus Christ. Before Jesus, just a, just a metaphor for Christ, a, um, really a type and shadow of who Christ would be, would be Joseph, would be, would be the second to youngest son of Jacob. It's a family destroyed. In the story of Jacob, we see a family ripped apart. Everybody in this story has a hand in it as well. There are four main people in this story. In chapter 27, we have Jacob, we have Esau, we have Rebekah, and we have Isaac, and each one has a hand in the dysfunction and the destruction of this family. I'll have a hand in ripping apart this family. I talked about the circular nature of Genesis. I named this sermon on how to destroy a family in four easy steps. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek because a lot of sermons are kind of like this, kind of this moralistic therapeutic deism. Follow these steps and things will go really great for you. All right, follow these steps and you'll destroy everything you touch. And really, that's not even my point. Wait until the very end of the sermon when I put this in the context of the gospel. But as we go throughout this, verses 1 through 17, we see a family who, what things were going good, is now being ripped apart. I was actually going to be preaching till verse 30 today, not even the full chapter, but even with verse 30, I think it would have been twice as long of a sermon. I heard another pastor, Andrew Curry, just go over 1 through 17, and that kind of just sparked a bell in me that that's what we should dwell on first how it's broken before we talk about how it's fixed. And actually, before we get to how it's fixed, oh, there is such a path to go through. It's a long time before Jacob wrestles with the angel. By the time Jacob wrestles with the angel, you're going to be wondering yourself, why did God choose Jacob? He's no better than Esau. In some ways, he's kind of worse. See, if Esau has a problem with you, he gets in your face and he punches you in your face, and that's how it works. But Jacob, on the other hand, he's like, he waits for you to be weak, and he's like, hey, You want this red stuff? There's something I want in return. What drives you? It's a simple question. It's really the question of verses 1 through 17 right here. What drives a person to do what they do? There are a million little answers. Survival, entertainment, psychological or physiological needs. But what is the big motivator in your life? When all other things need to take a backseat to this, what is it? 
you are in Christ today, God will only allow it to be him. Everything else will be an idol that he'll destroy for your good and his glory. You won't be comfortable on the way down either. I was speaking with another pastor from another tradition. We were just talking about different things. And he was saying about something he, was, he didn't like in his. And he's like, if there's one thing, if there's one golden calf in our fellowship that I could bust, grind into dust, put in the water and make everybody drink, it'd be this. And I'm like, oh my word, I'm stealing that. I'm not going to give you credit either, uh, Jay, uh, the, the dude from uh, the Lutheran church. Um, what drives you? God will only allow it to be him to be your center. Everything else will be a, a golden calf that he looks to destroy, to grind up. Isaac and Rebecca, out of all the people in the Bible, have a fairy tale relationship. They wanted children and they pray for them. God does a miracle and they have Jacob and Esau. In this chapter, we see it all going pear-shaped. This family gets ripped apart. There are four drives that are, that are driving them to this. Here are the four drives. One, be driven by lust. We have to go into the previous chapter for this, chapter um, 26. Get over here. I've actually mentioned this three times now with Esau in the choosing of his two wives. Who you decide to marry next to who, who you will serve, God or yourself, is the, is the second most important choice, is who you're going to marry. We see in verse 34 of chapter 26, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Berir, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Bathmat, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is the third time I've mentioned this, and it's for a reason, because just in those two verses right there that seem kind of like an aside, we see the beginning of the breaking up of this family. It has a lot to do with Esau's selfishness. See, you might say to yourself, okay, in the Bible times, didn't people have multiple wives? They did, and it was utter ruin, and there was never a good reason to have multiple wives. The creation mandate was one man, one woman, his father. That's not even how Esau was raised. His father had one wife. He had it modeled for him, but he didn't care because we are told, once again, in the New Testament, do not be godless like Esau, who sold his birthright for some stew. So why do I say this is lust? Because lust isn't just somebody picking up a playboy. It's not just the second glance at the beach. It's when we focus our desire, and it's about ourselves, onto somebody else. It's, a, it's, it's such an unthankfulness. God gives us, one day, those of you who are not married, God will give you a spouse, and that is where he wants your sexual desire to be on. For those of us who are married, that is what God wants us to do. So why, am I, why are these two? Well, one, he t- picks another wife. Why does he pick another wife? He's not looking to make an, uh, an alliance with the Hittites. It's because he wants to. Josephus really makes this clear. It's something I think Jewish people pick up on that I don't personally, is that when they read that, they're like, man, what a cad. He, could, he didn't care anything for Isaac and Rebekah. He's just like, I'm going to do things my way. And then on top of this, what does he look for in a wife? He looks to please himself in these two wives, not to please God, not to please his family, not to please his wives, but he looks to please himself. And we get an understanding of this from their names. Judith, by the way, Judith is a wonderful name. If your name is Judith, I don't think anybody here's name is Judith. It's a wonderful name. I'm not speaking anything against it. Um, Judith means praised one. Judith means praised one. And the, uh, the other wife right here, Bathmet, means perfumed. You remember when Abraham wanted to find a wife for Isaac and he sent his servant 
So we all have our little lists. I don't know if you all remember back before you were married. Some of you are not married. You have your little lists. What do your lists look like? Oh, she needs to be, how tall are you, Becca? You're like 5'2"? Five 5'3", three. Five three, brown hair, curly hair, <laughs> glasses. Oh, she needs, to, she needs to be good looking. She needs to be all these things from a good family. When the servant was perplexed and he wanted, he, was, he had such pressure, I need to find a good wife for my master's son. You know what he prayed? He prayed, one, that God would direct him. Two, that it would be the person, let me just paraphrase it, who'd be of good character. Because his little fleece, it wasn't just some random thing. He says, the person I asked for a drink, if they volunteer to water my camels, and I talked about like it's about 200 gallons of water that they'd have to water these camels with. Let that be the person. Esau, on the other hand, she smells nice and she's popular. Sounds good to me. I don't care what mom and dad think. They make life bitter for, for Isaac and Rebecca. They create this wedge between them and between all family matters because Esau is concerned for himself. God made one man and one woman to be united for life and to enjoy sexual intimacy together. If that isn't clear, then in the New Testament, the elder is supposed to be a wife, to be a husband of but one wife. Add on to that, that Abraham was told of the wickedness of the Canaanites, so he steered clear of them when he was looking for a wife for his son Isaac. Esau has no care. He's not willing to wait. He's not willing to be patient. That's what love is. Lust, on the other hand, lust can't wait. Lust is selfish. Lust is cruel. It's impatient. It boasts about conquest. It envies. No wonder the, ten, the Tenth Commandment, when it talks about coveting, says do not covet your neighbor's wife. It hates the truth, and it loves wrongdoing. It insists on its own way. It is fun for a season, but it leaves regret. After it destroys all that it comes into contact with, it does not stick around. It does not remain. And many relationships, many marriage relationships within the first year, they deal with this because they find out, yeah, my only reason why I want to be married to this person is because they were hot. And after a while, they realize that wears off. There has to be something more than that. Esau doesn't care. He doesn't care what the consequences are. In fact, if you want a greater example of this, more detailed understanding of Esau's decision to take two Canaanite wives, you can look at the story of Samson. He knows it's wrong to take a wife amongst the Canaanites, but he takes a wife from the Philistines, and then he, then he has a sexual liaison with Delilah. You look at this and he knows it's wrong. His parents tell him it's wrong, but he wants to do it either. And why does he want to do this? Because he sees her. We make all kinds of lies we tell ourselves when it comes to sin in our life, when it comes to lust, when it comes to all kinds of other sins. We tell ourselves, no, this is noble. And we're lying to ourselves. He wanted her because he saw her. And we know from there, the great destruction, then Delilah cuts his hair for Esau, he makes Rebekah and Isaac's life bitter. So bad was their life that Rebekah says in verse 46, which we're not getting to today from chapter 27, then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? 
Love is a creator, but lust is a destroyer. One person within Genesis who understands this is a pagan king. Isn't that crazy? The pagans sometimes have to check us. And that God uses them to check us. The, um, Abimelech. Abimelech, um, it's the same name, but it's two different people. One a father and one a son. During Abraham's time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, he gets tricked by their ruse. And he believes that Sarah is, in fact, the sister of Abraham. So he takes her into his harem. And God, God stops all births in his whole kingdom. Without any little Philistines, you don't have Philistines at all. I mean, this is one of, I mean, it seems there, there's no blood, there's no death, there's no fire from the sky, but this is complete. So he realized this, and then God tells him, appears to him in a dream, and tells him, you're dead. And then, of course, he figures this out. So his son, Abimelech, encounters the same thing, but he's on the watch for it. So when Isaac comes into his land with Rebekah, saying Rebekah's his sister, he's on the lookout for this. God leads him to this, and he treats lust the way he should treat it, like it's a nuclear bomb in your backyard. Just get it out of here. Run from it. He's only alive in that story because his father, Abimelech the senior, did not indulge in this. So he understands this. He treats it the way you should run from. But you know the way we treat sin, all kinds of sin, not just lust. We treat it like those people who keep a pet tiger. You know what I mean? Like they dress him up in funny clothes. He looks like Simba and they do the whole Lion King with him. But then Simba, Simba grows up into Shere Khan. And then one day something clicks in his head and he's like, I'm a tiger. And he mauls like the, the mailman or something. And then, you know, the, 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 the owners, all, they always say the same thing. I can't, I can't believe, I can't believe Petunia would do such a thing. She just went crazy. No, it was crazy most of its life when you were dressing it up in clothes. No, it finally went tiger. And that's what we do with sin. We make it a little pet. We think, oh, this is never going to attack me. See, I got it under control. It's fine. It's okay. And it grows and it grows. And all of a sudden, one day, it acts according to its nature. And it kills and destroys. I was listening to a youth evangelist one time when I was younger he made this really brilliant observation. I was trying to figure out who this was. I asked some friends. They remember the, they remember the story. They didn't remember who it was. So I'm making this up. I'm just kidding. Um, I didn't come up with it. But anyway, I thought it was really good. And as a pastor for now 15 years, as a professional pastor, 10 years before that, as a lay minister, I found this to be crystal clear. He said in his youth ministry, he'd have young men go to college, especially young men for some reason. They'd come back and they'd start saying things like, I don't think I believe in God anymore. And instead of debating with him, he asked them this question, who are you sleeping with? Oh, oh, pastor, what are you doing? After a while, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes a crisis of, crisis of faith really is a crisis of conscience. So being driven by lust. Here's the second thing as we get into verses one through four. Be driven by your stomach, your appetites and your interests. This is Isaac. Point one was Esau. Before we get to chapter 27, he's already created a rift. But Isaac... Isaac is a good guy. I mean, he's a man of faith. He allowed his father to bind him up and to potentially sacrifice him. But he also has another side to him. He has a spirit nature and he has a flesh nature. And that flesh nature just cares about the worldly things. 
Verses one through four, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here am I. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, which I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, and my soul may bless you before I die." In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, gives us this great warning. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There are so many good things about Isaac, but he wasn't perfect. And his vices are what he passes down to Esau. I know I've said this in so many sermons. I want to say it again. All of us have parents. We get to choose what we take from our parents. Not every legacy you're given is one you should pick up. Esau does not take the legacy of faith. He instead takes the legacy, this materialistic, you know, we would use in theological circles, carnal legacy. We'd probably say today that that there's a part of Isaac that is very much focused on the material things. His God is his stomach in that he uses, you know, what's interesting? The narrator says he loves Esau and the word there is cheb, and when it says, when, Esau, when Isaac is saying to Esau, make that food that I have, I love, you get very much, you get things confused when we're being materialistic. He's a, it's a material world and he's not a material girl, but he's a material boy. Um, it's a shame too, since Isaac, Isaac was also a man of faith, but Esau doesn't want that. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 27, when we're told that Jacob loves Esau best, we're told about Esau, when, he, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tent, tents. In Esau, Isaac gets to relive his youth. As we enter chapter 27, he's so old, he can't barely see. He's bedridden. But in Esau, he gets to relive this youth. And we even see this today. It's the parent at the Little League, at the little league game who's bright red, who's screaming at the umpire, that was a strike. Settle down, my man. It's just playing around. Yeah, some parents, they want to live through their youth and then they, they want to live, relive their youth through their kids. And then they show that favoritism. And the favoritism ends up hurting the kid worse than, than their neglect they have of the others. We continue seeing this in parents today where they want to live through their kids. Um, here's something to consider. Here's something to consider also with Isaac. What of the prophecy did Isaac know? The prophecy I'm referring to, when Rebecca is pregnant, she's having a really, really difficult time. So she inquires of the Lord and the Lord tells her she's going to have twins. She has two nations in her. We know this and we look at the long view of scripture. It's Israel and it's Edom. It's Esau and Jacob. And they're fighting with each other. And, he, and she is told, uh, but the older will serve the younger. Isaac knows this prophecy. He knows this is what God wants, but he is unwilling because he loves Esau more. Because Esau is a man of the field. Because Esau is like what he wants to be. He loves him more and he loves him worse by doing this. 
His mind is not set on heavenly things, but on earthly things. And if we got to this point, we'll get to it next week. But when Esau, when Isaac finds out he's been tricked, he trembles with fear. You can just imagine the words of the prophecy echoing in his ears. He was a younger son favored over the older son. You can say, oh, it was the culture they were in, but they had a different culture. They had a different tribe. He loved Esau more because his mind was set on earthly things. His, he was driven by his stomach, by his appetites, and by his interests. Enjoy blessings in your life, but do not make them your joy. You are surrounded by blessings of God. It is good for you to enjoy them. Some people, they kind of a point of pride about how much they willingly suffer in this life. I don't know what good that is. Somebody's like, oh yeah, we, I never go on a vacation. Now, if you don't like going on vacation, this doesn't apply to you. But if you think it's a really great badge of honor, you're like, oh no, we're just always miserable, Pastor Jason. I'm not impressed. You know? Why? Why, why would you? Why? I mean, this, this world has enough trouble of its own. Why would you not seize the opportunity for any kind of enjoyment that God willingly gives you? Enjoy these things in your life, but don't make them your joy. Don't make them your center. Don't make them your core. Because then it becomes an idol. And what God meant for good turns to evil in your heart. Because you put it ahead of him. You worship the blessing of the Lord instead of the Lord of the blessings. You know, one thing I really enjoy is running. I do it many times in a week. I don't know why. It's not very fun while I'm doing it, but the feeling afterwards is amazing. It's easy for me to make that my joy. In fact, I know people who did make it their joy. I know people who their family was destroyed because they were so focused on running. They neglected and their love grow cold for all others. This is the thing about idols. Whether it's lust or whether it's our stomach, whether it's ambition or whether it's selfishness, they don't just take away the love we should have for each other. They take away the love we should have for God. That's how wicked and evil they become. Even the blessings of God can be used as this. Remember the story of Gideon. It's not my notes. I'm just doing this from memory. Story of Gideon. Amazing story, right? God conquers another nation with 300 people with no weapons. It's awesome and amazing. And then the people come to Gideon. They tell him, you be king over us. And he's like, no, 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 no. Just give me an ephod. An ephod is a priestly garment. It's in Leviticus. It's something good, something holy. But he sets it up and they worship it. We can do that with all the blessings that we have. If we, if we don't just enjoy them, but we make it our joy, that's where we're getting to. Here's a quote from Andrew Curry. Over the years, Isaac had lost the ability to hear the roar of the Lord over the grumbling of his tummy. Over the years, Isaac had lost the ability to hear the roar of the Lord over the grumbling of his tummy. Sometimes we wonder, why am I not feeling this connection with God? Why am I not hearing from God? I read the scriptures, it's just words. I'm praying, and it just seems like I'm talking into the darkness. Maybe it's because our affections have been stolen by something else. An idol has replaced the Lord. I have these uh, really neat noise-canceling earbuds. They're sold on Amazon. My wife hates them because I can't hear anything when they're in. I should probably remember this when I'm out running because that's dangerous. But anyway, 
I can't hear anything, so I'm like doing something in the house, and Becca's trying to talk with me. I can't hear anything. Sometimes we're so frustrated, we're like, God's not really speaking to me. God's, all this stuff is not happening. It's because we put on these noise-canceling headphones. Here's the third drive. Be driven by ambition. This is Rebecca, verses 5 through 13. Now, Rebecca was listening to Isaac, listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. What happened to the relationship they had? When they could be seen giggling together, and someone's like, that's not your sister, buddy. So when Isaac, when, sorry, when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and to bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two, young, two good young goats so that I may prepare for from them delicious food for your father, such as he Hebs, loves. She's eavesdropping. What happened to the love they had for each other? This love has grown toxic. In this family, we see a lot of love, but that love grows toxic when it's put in front of, the, in front of God. Isaac and Rebecca love, loved each other. They loved their sons. Now we see Esau take his wives. He loves lust. Isaac, from his own mouth, says he loves delicious food prepared by Esau. Now Rebekah, she loves Jacob, but it is a toxic love. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, I'm not going to give a full rundown on the book, but here's the basic concept. If every day hell had a bus that went from hell to heaven, and at the end of the day, those in hell could decide whether they want to stay in heaven or go back to hell, the answer would be every single day the bus comes back full. That hell is locked from the, out, from the inside, not from the outside. That the natural man does not love God. And, in, and confronted by God and his holiness or even God's love, they would, they would despise it. And one of the people in this story is a mother who's in hell, and she comes to heaven. She's trying to find her son who's in heaven. She doesn't want to stay in heaven with her son. She wants to drag her son from heaven into hell. And the narrator of the book, George MacDonald, says to the, says to the person who is, uh, who is uh, the first person narrator, is that basically that's not love. It's a toxic love that looks to use the person for their own emotional needs. It's not looking for the best in that person, the good in that person. We see here, not a, there's not a lot of trust between Isaac and Rebecca. She's eavesdropping on this conversation with, with her son. In the next verse, look at how she addresses the situation with Jacob. In verse 6, I kind of was emphasizing this as I was going along. And Rebecca said to her son, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. You see the distancing language? Parents, do you ever do this with your kids when your kid is being naughty? Your son, do you know what your son did today? She goes to Jacob, she's like, your brother and your father, distancing. She's obviously been alienated from both of them. We already knew about Esau, but we already see, we heartbreakingly see this with Isaac. All she has left is Jacob and Jacob's ambition, her wanting him to see him on top, consumes her 
She is wanting to hold on to him because it's the last relationship in her life and it is her everything. And the harder she holds on, the more she loses. After telling him about the window of opportunity, she doesn't suggest, she orders Jacob in verse eight. The Hebrew is extremely stern here. You don't get even more stern than this. She's not asking, she's telling. You're going to do this. In verses 9 and 10, we see her manipulation here of going to the flock and preparing the delicious food. And then also she wants goats because Esau, once again, Michael J. Fox and Teen Wolf, he's a hairy dude. Man, he must have been really hairy because they make a big deal out of this. And so does Josephus. And I'm just like, wow, I, okay, is a werewolf basically. And uh, she puts it on his arms and then the back of his neck so that when his brother, how sad is that? So when his father hugs him, he's still fooled. She looks to manipulate. She knows the prophecy. She knows that Isaac knows the prophecy. So why doesn't she go into Isaac, go to Isaac and tell him, what about the prophecy? What about what God wants? She's not straight up with him. She manipulates. She's underhanded and she's taught her son to do the same thing. Isaac and Rebecca's relationship, you see how far their marriage relationship has fallen. In chapter 24, verse 67, we see her comforting Isaac after the loss of his mother. In chapter 26, verse 8, they can't even pretend that they're different people because they're giggling together and the king of the Philistines see this. But now in these verses I just read to you, she is using her God-given skill for cooking and for sewing as a trick against her husband, against her love. Ambition is a dangerous thing especially when it's the ultimate thing. You know what the sad thing is? She loses what she tries to hold on to. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would follow him, they must take up their cross and follow him. That if anybody wants to save his life, they must lose it. If they would lose their life for his sake, they would save it. And we see this expertly illustrated in Rebecca and Jacob because she wants to hold on to Jacob. She wants him to be top. And at the end of this chapter, she loses him for the rest of her life. She never sees him alive again because of her ambition. Ambition on his sake, yes, but ambition nonetheless. There's no excuses in here either because Jacob is the one who does this. We'll get into him in just a second, but as we finish up Rebecca here, we skip down to verse 17, the last verse of what we read. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. She puts the deception into her own son's hands. Watch the legacy you give your children. From Jacob's hand, the deception passes to his sons. So, driven by lust, driven by the fleshly nature, your stomach, being driven by ambition. The fourth one really encapsulates them all is being driven by selfishness. And this is Jacob. Jacob at this point in his life is selfish. He sees the people in his life just as a means to an end. What would happen to his mother after this? He doesn't care as long as it's not happening to him. What would happen to Esau after this? It's not happening to him. Who, who cares? What about Isaac when he realized he's really been fooled by his son whom he loves and loves him? doesn't matter. It's not me. In, in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, when one of the conspirators are trying to convince the other to literally put a knife in their friend's back, he tells him 
and this is my paraphrase of it, is that lowliness or humbleness, being humble, is the ladder the ambition, the ambitious must climb. And once they get to the top rung, they kick that thing right out from under them. Jacob is ambitious. He's selfishly ambitious. The destruction of selfish ambition. How do you see the people in your life, your family, your friends, your coworkers? Why do they exist? Do they exist to serve you? To do what you want? If you think that or if you act like that, better question, if when they do not do what you want to do, want them to do, you get furious and angry with them, you might be where Jacob's at. There's no excuses here. As we read in verses 11 and 12, we might think there is, like, there's something about Jacob. He has second thoughts here in verse 11. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will, will feel me, and I shall be seem, as, seem as to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. We're like, okay, maybe this is second thoughts. He's like, well, I, I, I don't want to be seen like I'm mocking my dad, but that's not what he's doing at all. He's concerned about the curse. We don't think much about curses today, in, even from our family. And I remember growing up watching those daytime television shows like Maury, and those kids couldn't care less about what their mom or dad thought of them. In Jacob's time, he had a pretty good illustration because it wasn't so many generations back after the flood when Noah was dwelling in the land and he, ate so, he made wine from these grapes. He drank too much and he passed out naked that his son went to mock him and to get the other brothers to mock him. It didn't happen at that moment, but when it was time for Noah to bless his sons, he curses that one. So Jacob's like, I don't want these consequences. When he decides to do it, when he decides to do it, is when his mother said, I will take the consequences, I will take the curse. What about his mom? I don't care, it's not me. This selfishness is really his guiding light at this point in time in his life. When he goes through with this, he can't stay at home. He very wisely gets out of there right away because his brother Esau is not a guy to just take this lying down. When Esau finds out about this, he'll say, you rightly named him Jacob. You rightly named him deceiver, heel grabber. Twice he has done this to me. He has no excuses. He says, perhaps my father will fill me and I, and, and I shall seem to be mocking him. Seem to be mocking him. What do you call what you're doing? When Jacob, after this, when Jacob goes to, uh, to Laban, he gets tricked by Laban. Laban tells him, around here, we don't prefer the younger to the older. He was mocking his father. He made his father a laughingstock in all the land. Who would ever hear this story Rebecca reassures him. Rebecca volunteers to take the curse from this ruse. It's only then that Jacob agrees to do it when the risk is low and the reward is high, or so he thinks. He would have been a great middle manager in retail, but <laughs> I digress. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, I believe I have, I have that on here. Let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. <coughs> right, that's okay, I'll find it. All right, great, thank you. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, is that the correct? 
All right. Oh, that's okay. Um, let me go to Third John right here. Third John, there is a, uh, there is a guy named Diathrus, and he loves the preeminence. He thinks church is all about him. He throws out people he doesn't like, but only Christ has the preem- preeminence. C.S. Lewis says that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's power. I would distill that down even more and say that it is selfishness. Why are families, why are churches, why are nations, why are individuals broken? Selfishness. What is the root of almost every problem? Selfishness. You noticed in there, I didn't spend much time in it, but Rebecca says that she would take the curse for Jacob. Worship team, you can come up at this time. Here's the thing. Rebecca could not take a curse that was placed on Jacob. She had her own curse to worry about. She broke God's law as surely as anybody else did. You can't take someone else's curse when you're dealing with your own. But there would be one from the redeemed lineage of Jacob, of Israel, Jesus Christ. And he would become our curse by hanging on a tree, for it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I said at the beginning of this, this is not going to be a moralistic message. Don't do these four things and things will go perfectly for you. You can not do these four things. Somebody else in your life can. You can do everything right and still have, and still have problems in your, in, your, in your life, in your marriage, in your family. But here's the thing. God is greater than our, than our troubles. God is greater than when we mess up. He took the curse on us so that we would not live in our curse. Only one person can take the curse you've earned, that is Jesus Christ. He became a curse for us when he hung on the tree. Faith and repentance urge you to fall upon the mercies of the Lord today. We look at these four drives right here. I talked about the circular nature of Genesis. Good, broken, restored. Good, broken, restored. At the end of Genesis, at the end of the book of the beginnings, the 11th son of Jacob, who we've been talking about, Joseph, he's faced with all four of these drives. These drives are in him, but he denies them. And why does he deny them? The drive for lust. Potiphar's wife comes to him. There was a price for righteousness, and he was willing to pay it. And he goes to prison for it. Because he would not. He would not disgrace his God. He would not disgrace his master, Potiphar. You know, Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? And he gives two. He gives them the Shema Yisrael. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So much, that is so much before the time of Joseph, but Joseph knew it because that's what faith says. Faith says, love God, love your neighbor. So when he is confronted by the drive for lust, he denies it because he loves God and he loves his neighbor more than he loves himself. When it came to just enjoying the things in this, in this world, he decides that's not good enough. He would obey his father and he would go out to his brothers, which once again leads him into slavery for a period of time. When the Pharaoh is talking to him about his dreams and there's something, there's part of the word of God stirring in him about the dreams and it's not all good news. Even pastors today have a hard time with this. They only want to take, talk about the positive side of things. Everything's all honky and dory, even though we all know we live this life, and in this life we have trouble. 
And so they withhold because they know people are going to be upset. You know, pastors, don't talk about the transgender issue. Don't talk about homosexuality. Don't talk about the way we vote. Don't talk about the way we live our lives. And they're terrified of this. So they don't want to say, Joseph is told by God what the Pharaoh's dreams mean. And they're not all sunshine and rainbows. Seven years of plenty, but seven years of famine and want. And if he doesn't do this right, everybody dies. But his concern's not for himself. By the way, in that time, you give a bad prophecy like this, it could mean your life. There's a lot of examples we have in antiquity, including in the Middle Ages, even when they were okay with a certain amount of uh, fortune-telling. If you said something against the king, you're dead, even if it came true, it doesn't matter. But his concern is not for himself, for his own ambition. He looks to love his God and to love his neighbor as himself. And when his brothers, when his brothers lie to him once again about what their father had said, when there's nobody to stop him from taking vengeance, he says, am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant it for the good. You want to break this cycle in your own life, this own crazy cycle? There's just really one step. Live to please the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Leonard Ravenhill said that, that a praying man sins less, a sinning man prays less. Live to please the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. If you look to be gratified by the sinful nature, you will not please the Spirit. Once again, this isn't a moralistic do X, Y, and Z and things will go good for you. Fall upon the mercies of Christ. And remember this, dear one, you only act the way you do because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the Spirit's work. Against such things, there is no law. Against such things, it's what we, the Spirit puts into us and then we want to do it. We desire to. But if we want to live according to the flesh nature, well, we can expect to see the same kinds of destruction. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song?